0: Hi everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today I have a very special guest, Martha Lane Fox, entrepreneur, uh, charitable contributor, uh, somebody who's been involved with some amazing companies like My Deco, Last Minute, and very, very involved with government. And we're gonna talk a little bit about the roles of the, the, the entrepreneurs of the UK in Brexit. Uh, one of the things I wanna start off with, as I usually do, is your early life.
1: Um, How early are we talking? Early? Pre-five?
0: College, college, <laughs> what you studied, uh, what was the thing that really motivated you when you were in school, that, then what was the first thing you did afterwards?
1: I studied ancient and modern history. Um, I loved the ability to compare and contrast across bits of time, so ancient history spans 500 BC to the present day, and what a luxury and privilege to be able to say, oh look, something happening in 1930s India is actually quite similar to something that happened in 200 AD Rome. So that was where I got my um, energy from for new ideas particularly, I think. and post-university, I decided I either wanted to go into the prison service and become a prison governor, or I wanted to go and work um, for Pearson as a um, young uh, apprentice, I guess, in their company. But actually what I did was go and work for a strategy consulting company called Spectrum, just by chance. I fell into that job through Connections, but it was transformational because it was a startup. I joined when there were nine people Uh, Brent was my immediate boss. So that was the person that I then went on to co found lastminute.com with. And it was a company entirely focused on helping companies think about the impact of these new technologies. So I was able to travel around the world, see all these different things from loads of different angles, always looking at media and telecoms and the role of the Internet. And that was in 1994, so it was early to be thinking Mm -hmm. about some of the issues.
0: How long were you at Spectrum?
1: I was there for three, four years, years. Um, and because, again, the company was growing at a rate of knots, so when I left, I think we were nearer 110 people, we'd started as nine. It was an incredible experience of watching how to grow a company as well. It was a male and a female co-founder, and we ran it, and they gave a lot of responsibility to people up and down the chain, and I often found myself as the most junior person in the team or in the company, you know, deciding things like what should the policy be around uh, company holidays or what should we be thinking about in terms of when we go on our away days and think about strategy. And that was an incredible opportunity and I always will have a deep respect and thank for the thank you for the people that started that business because they taught me a lot, not only about the work we were doing, but about how to grow a business.
0: Yeah, when we were chatting uh, before starting the, the recording, one of the things that you mentioned was the nature of technology, you know, the mid-90s versus today and the tools and, and pitching to, to investors on, on the promise that this was going to become you know, reality. When you were at this consulting firm, were you finding yourselves recommending solutions and, and pitching for ideas to people who were reluctant to take them on? And, was, and how did you manage that?
1: It was more that we were looking at uh, strategic directions that companies should take faced with the onslaught of the shifts in technology. So we only worked in me- with media and technology businesses. Sometimes, you know, that was quite a broad span of what the media technology business might look like. But uh, my projects, my, one of my first projects was for BT, and it was called What is the Internet? You know, it was that basic, and I didn't know what the Internet was at age 21 in 1994. So that was an amazing learning curve. Arguably, you could still do that project for BT, but i put that aside. Um, and, you know, I then went on to do an extraordinarily interesting and um, wonderful piece of work that was for the British government. And it was called Benchmarking the Information Superhighway. Uh, no one listening to this podcast will be old enough to remember the information superhighway. But it did exist and people thought it was this kind of wrap around all of the things that were going on in the world about... The speeding up of information, and I was sent to Japan and New Zealand and Canada and America to look at various initiatives that were going on, both in the corporate sector and the public sector, about how to build, you know, these new technologies. So, you know, what an incredible exposure at such a young age to this amazingly uh, dynamic and shifting world.
0: So, I know that right now you're working on a lot of projects, some of which include still promoting new technologies to some of these large companies and so I know we're jumping a little, little around here in terms of time but do you see any similarities into the way that large companies are still reacting to, to these technologies and, and what, what are the kinds of ideas that you've been pushing and promoting today that resemble and sort of bring back memories of the mid-90s where you're doing promotions of new technologies?
1: It's an astute question because I think about this a lot. And it may just be my own particularly strange trajectory. You know, I'm not... We're sitting here in Bond Hill Street in amongst some of the brightest and best startups in London. And I'm not plugged into the crazy new startup world. So sometimes I feel as though I am still fighting those same battles that we were fighting Parley uh, in that first job and then convincing people at the time of lastminute.com about the internet. But what I find interesting is, you know... The early adopters are the early adopters, and there will always be this cutting edge of innovation. But for me, the interesting and profound societal shifts happen when you start to mainline some of these things into the public sector, into big corporates, into the establishment of whatever it might be of uh, any particular country. And, you know, if you look at where I am now, I sit in the House of Lords. I have been on the board of Marks and Spencers. I've done a lot of work in central government, and I set up an organisation to help think about how to make Britain um, more fair uh, if you look at the internet, so not everyone. So I'm working a lot with either big corporates that um, are able to move the dial in terms of how Britain becomes more digital, often by moving the dial for themselves. So if I look at one of our partners, Lloyds Bank, moving from a retail high street bank to a digital bank, but it's you know, a difficult process, it's a you know big shift for a mm. very old organisation. Or I look at something like government, which, you know, again, is just the most incredible opportunity for change if we really think about government as a way that can lead how people think about technology rather than being the last port of call to adopt it. I believe we can have some extremely important impacts on some of the most disadvantaged people in our society, Mm. but also the the efficiency and workings of government itself.
0: Mm. So maybe if if I continue down that path, before we jump back to the last minute, what is it that founders can do today to help make the lives of either government easier or of corporates who are trying to digitize easier? What are the best ways that you have seen, especially like the stage that we're talking to, early stage companies, yes. to be able to interface with them and then sort of make, enable your job to, to be a lot easier?
1: It's hard, right? And I think one of the things that um, has happened in government over the last five years, which is good, is that there has been a shift in, to use a horrible word, procurement, and the kind of supply roster into government, and it's moved from being only massive companies that arguably have fleeced us as citizens over the last decades to an ability for a smaller company to work with government to provide services, you know, interact, use open platforms, open APIs, and so on. But it is still only at the beginning of this journey. It really is just the start. So I think my words to founders will be: don't give up hope. Um, mm. If you meet people, you'll get the opportunity to have a chance to meet. Um, and working government. I think it's rewarding. You know, It's a big market and it it's, can be very important and powerful for beyond just mm. the business you're trying to create. But it's also frustrating and I would certainly not say we're there yet as a country and how we encourage that relationship between startups and government. Mm. I think corporates is is interesting and has changed a lot again in the last decade. Uh, Brent, my um, good friend and co-founder, started something called founders factory as you may know and they have a smart model where corporates invested in different sector um, investment vehicles to then invest in startups so mm. they have you know a range of startups in the media a range of startups in financial services and so on and that's a neat way to connect back into the corporates mm. so i think that there is more of a recognition now in 2017 than there's ever been that if i'm leading a big company I need to be aware of what's happening in startup world in my space. Um, But it can sometimes be hard to join up those dots, but it is shifting.
0: All right. Well, let's rewind the clock back to your days at last minute. You were in a consulting company. You were working with Brent. And then you said, you know what? We're done with consultancy. Let's start a actually there was a stage there was a
1: stage in between that um brent had the idea for lastminute.com at 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 spectrum partly because he was the most last minute person on the planet and was always arranging his very busy and exotic social life on a friday night late in the office and i'd be sitting on the floor of his office, watching him as he made five phone calls trying to find a luxury hotel book something to go somewhere glamorous and he thought there's a better way of doing this and there was and that was where lastminute.com came from so he had the idea um But we both left to get some more experience than just being consultants. Brent went to work um, in a startup, QXL, uh, which went on to become quite a successful auction company. And I went to work at Carlton Television to try and do deals to actually be there and cut my commercial teeth a bit. Mm. Neither of us liked that experience very much. And I think quite quickly, I think I was only there for a year, maybe 18 months, Brent said, "Um, you know, let's go and do this now. So we did. Uh, And he very generously offered me the chance to be his co-founder and we started off on this adventure so that was early 98 a time when seems strange now but there really wasn't a a kind of belief that the internet would necessarily survive let alone be a tool that we all used every day you know mobile was unthought of it wasn't that wasn't in people's conceptual framework yet and the um businesses that dominated the web weren't these huge platforms that you could suddenly see okay I get on Facebook and I can scale across the world it it was a fragmented and distributed web so it was a time when we were convincing people that the internet wasn't going to blow up and the secondary part was whether lastminute.com was a good idea or not
0: Mm. so what was those pitch sessions like then when you were going out trying to convince
1: you're being generous with the term pitch sessions that implies that many many people wanted to see us and talk to us I'd have to check with my compadre, but I remember maybe only two investors even being interested to have a meeting with us, Um, partly because there were only three investors that were even investing in this stuff, and two said no to us. But partly, yeah, because it was just the whole market. There was not much money flowing into internet web businesses at that time. We had a couple of very unsuccessful meetings. One where I've said this many times before, so sorry if this is repetitive, but they only asked one question. They looked at Brent and they said, what happens if you get pregnant, meaning me? So that was obviously a no. Um, But luckily, we did find an investor. And um, I wish I had written down more about what those sessions were like. But as I say, my dominant memory was... You know we had a piece of paper and we were two young bucks me slightly younger than mr hoberman but he <laughs> loves it when i say that um we really the concept of now of like build a thing and show a thing we hadn't done that we just we just had a piece of paper we weren't coders we couldn't even build a piece of uh software to save our lives so it was quite a big punt for an investor do i trust these two youngish people who haven't really done anything except be consultants and have got a piece of paper and I'm not really sure the internet's going to be here in 10 years' time. So those are the conversations as opposed to maybe some of the more granular discussions mm. you'd have now because you've got better informed investors and definitely better informed founders. Mm.
0: So in your role yeah. now as potentially an investor, and I know you've spent a lot of time with Brent now with Founders Factory, would you have invested in the two of you? Like, what,
1: <laughs> That's a very good question. What are the
0: elements of never thought what, about that. what is a good age? What is a good management team and whether yeah. or not you would have self-qualified?
1: Yes, I you know, I like to think I would have done because we knew we although we weren't able to sit and build our website and although we didn't have a thing, we had a piece of paper, we were we were smart. we'd done a lot of work, we'd done a massive amount of research. you know, we'd started, we just hadn't built anything. and Brent's idea was a really good one. It was compelling. you know you didn't need to explain it for very long. It sells things at the last minute. It's an aggregator for stuff at the last minute that's really hard to work out yourself. And I think our combination of exuberance, determination and uh, energy was probably easy to see. You I know? um, don't want to sound grand, but I think I'm quite an energetic, and optimistic, enthusiastic person. Brent is times 100, so I think that that combination of do you think that these two young people are going to put their all into building something, I would have definitely ticked that box. Mm. People might not have fancied the dynamics of a last-minute business, which is very low-margin, Quite high risk in some ways, all that part. But you know, if you bet on teams, then I think we look like a team that we're going to try our absolute hardest to do an incredible job.
0: So, when was the first time that you guys hit a wall then? Because you know, there's the first few days where there's a euphoria around, like, whoa, we'll make this work, we'll go pitch, yeah. and yeah. we've worked together. What was the moment when you're like, actually, Brent, this might suck, this might actually not go yeah. anywhere?
1: I think we didn't so much feel that the uh, idea sucked because. The idea felt quite robust. There was a gap, you know, the way that you booked stuff at that time, if you wanted to do something at the last minute, you went onto to C-fax. you know, there was the really old fashioned thing on the television to look at the hideously presented rolls of holidays, or you went into classified adverts to see what was available and you made a phone call. It was a horrible user journey. So the idea that you could create a place where you could get these amazing deals, and you could book them, all in the click of a mouse, that was really quite something. So I don't think we ever lost faith in the idea. I think the things that were hard, like building any business perhaps, firstly, the ability to access the product. So we didn't have skills in travel technology, but this was complicated. You had to reach into travel systems to pull out the inventory to be able to display. It was in real time. It was all last minute. It was complicated stuff to be able to make the transactions. And, you know, the first website, it was all completely put together with string. We didn't have the live product. It just pretended it did, and we were doing it at the back, printing out facts, sending it to an airline, printing out a ticket, putting in an envelope. You know, it was a complete mishmash. So that was a whole thing. Would we actually be able to have the product? The um, building of the website, because, uh, again, it was 1998. It was early. We didn't have the tools that are available now, That are often much much cheaper sometimes free you know tried and tested we were inventing way too much we spent far too much money and had lots of screw-ups around that first site so slow it was uh, hideous to look at I think one of the only fights that Brent and I ever had was about the color of the website and the way it should look but that was kind of secondary to the actual pace of loading the homepage. I mean, it seems again strange to sit here in this hyperconnected bit of London and think about watching a page just go chug, 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 chug as it loaded up. That was killer. So the tech stuff was was tough, and we spent a lot of money, and we thought we were going to launch at one point, and we didn't, and blah blah blah. So that was hard. So it was you know probably that combination of the. Idea still feeling mm. really compelling, and the more people we talked to, the more it became more and more uh, convincing. Compared with, the re- compared with the reality of actually how you built it, and being able to get that live product and create a site, mm. you know, at good scale
0: on the on the technology side. One of the things that some um, some founders really panic about if they don't have, have a tech team is can they can they actually get funding? Can they take yeah. any kind of interest from investors if they don't have a tech team you know hearing your story sounds like you know maybe for the time it was probably the average of a founder trying to start something you know before coders started really becoming yeah. prevalent as, yeah. a, as a as a source for innovation yeah. but what do you consider today as sort of a, a a death knell for for a startup when it comes to their tech team like would you have would you have looked back at those days and thought you know maybe I should have brought on somebody to be the CTO before we even launched or, or to yeah, take we, leadership Yeah, we did have someone
1: who was a CTO before we even launched. But I think, you know, that's quite a hard role in a startup, isn't it? Because on one hand, you're saying, can you design the UX? On the other hand, you're saying, can you build a system that goes into databases to get live travel flights and book them? It's a big expanse of a role at a time when a company is actually um, very small and you probably need a person doing all of the bits, but you can't get that one individual mm. So that would be a kind of superhero. So... I think it's a really tough challenge and I don't know if I know the answer to it now. I think that um, starting things today, in some ways, you have a huge advantage because it is easier and cheaper and the technology is more invented. But in other ways, it's still as tough because if you're not the coder yourself, you're always going to be a bit constricted by that technical expertise in that gap. Mm. So I wish I had a simple answer to that question, but I don't. And I'm not sure you should believe me even if I did.
0: Yeah, no, but it's, it, one of the things you were talking about earlier was the lack of tech tools. And it, yeah. and it sounds like it was a combination of potentially the both of you not having yes. that. It sounds like you did have somebody who was in charge of tech, but then that person was now tasked with building a company with... With no tools, yes. basically inventing them yes, themselves. Yes, exactly.
1: No, that was definitely right.
0: And then, and then trying to fund all that. Yes. So What was the, so? Once you overcame that that tech component, what was the next sort of big friction point? You know, was it the partnerships with all the data sources? Was it was it the go to market? The costs yeah. of of proliferating this across the, the entire UK, or what were the big things that really sort of almost tore the company up?
1: Well, I'm, we're lucky that I don't recall things tearing the company up in the, that startup sense. You mm. can come on to the IPO. That was a different kind of challenge that did nearly you know, there was a really tough cultural challenge, but that was separate. I think in that early period to launch, you know, we overspent massively in getting that tech built because we were building too much completely personalized tech. Mm-hmm. We're inventing way too much stuff, all that um, that you quite rightly describe. We had to get a bridging mm-hmm. loan to cover through to be able to get to our proper. all those things about financing and funding because mm-hmm. we'd overspent on tech. But um the... The trick, isn't it, always when you're launching something is to not let any one thing bring you down. You have to, I think, swim across many different um, lanes at the same time. And so two co-founders is is quite a neat thing in some ways because you can divide and conquer. So we did, you know, both of us were across many complicated partnerships to get hotels to work with us to get airlines to work with us we then um, did a big partnership with Yahoo to launch our site to get people to get traffic we were doing lots of PR together we were doing lots of different things so we were trying to divide and conquer and be across as much as possible but it's always that balancing act between making sure you have an absolutely relentless focus on the product quality married with um, the ability to get people to find it Mm. Uh, but the Wonderful thing that happens if you get it right, is then that positive reinforcement. So the one of the triggers for the business that took a bit too long to get to, but we got there was we managed to convince Iceland Air to give us £99 flights to New York via Reykjavik. You know, now that doesn't sound so insane, but then it was jaw-dropping. Haldor Halaldson was the chief ticketing officer in Iceland Air in the office in London. I think he thought that Brent and I were in love with him because we stalked him until he was beaten down and gave us product. But I think looking back, you know, for all the tech challenges, if you don't build a really compelling product, whatever that might be, whether it's a business one or a consumer one, that will kill you off eventually. Mm. Because... We definitely felt people will get through pretty shitty tech to find the product that's absolutely brilliant. And mm. um, you know, Advertising a flight for £99 to New York. What? I can go return to New York for £99? You are joking. I will battle through a homepage that loads slowly a ticket that looks like it might have come from a kind of slightly dodgy travel company. I believe it. So that was where we put a lot of focus, was making sure we had that compelling product.
0: So if I look at the... The points we've talked about one was tech, and that was kind of you were the victim of the times, if you will. But the second one being getting these great deals. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I know about you and Brent is that you're great at business development, great at building relationships, and sometimes it's easy to take that for granted. So maybe we can sort of unpack that, maybe with Mm -hmm. a few anecdotes, about how you recommend to a startup to approach not stock but approach potential partnerships yes, and uh and, and how there do, might be
1: some stalking involved some right? stalking
0: involved so how does that work because i mean for, for a business like last minute it seems like a lot of it came from those kinds of relationships yeah. building those relationships in a way that would then give you a competitive advantage mm-hmm. and then have a commercial draw so most startups when they go start approaching Large companies or potential partners—they probably it's the first time they're doing it. Yeah. So, what what are the sort of if you yeah. what are the things that you and Brent do that make it possible to to close these deals so well?
1: I think we are lucky, and that was one of the things that made us a good partnership is that we have a very similar approach and value system about this kind of stuff, right? And I think that um, it is really important to me, and I think it's always reflected in that the, the other the other side of the table feel it. If you are somebody that you know, is charming and friendly and not, you know, aggressive and ruthless and unpleasant because who wants to deal with a person like that? You know, much more interesting and fun to deal with someone that feels like they're taking you on an adventure and a ride and a journey that's going to be um, something life-enhancing. So we both approached... business from that point of view and i think we also both approached it from not wanting to be you know monsters and always leave something a bit on the table it doesn't matter if you didn't screw the final bit of commission to the tiniest degree Mm -hmm. we were young bucks who knew nothing amazing that they gave us 99 pound flats in new york could we probably have made a bit more commission on them maybe but we got the product and it meant that the business got into that cycle and ended on so on so on so i think setting your own personal value system and making it to my mind generous friendly kind that helps, And that's maybe a trite thing to say, but I'm amazed how often people seem to forget that because you get sort of bogged down in the yeah. essential nature of what you're doing. It feels like the most important thing in the world. You get yeah. sort of aggressive about it. It feels like a whole world is revolving around it and you actually forget mm-hmm. to be a human being. So that would be my first point. Mm-hmm. The second thing I'd say is, you know, the stalking bit aside, we joked about it, there is a relentlessness to building anything, isn't there? And I know now if I look at things that I'm doing, you know, I'm lucky I can open doors and I'm lucky that people generally want to meet me although sometimes they probably run away from me when they see me coming because they know I'm going to ask for something big and annoying but uh, if I look at my own inbox if someone emails me or found me through LinkedIn or whatever and it's sort of interesting I'll leave it but if they come back to me two or three times then I'll think well this person is serious they found out about me they've thought about what they might want from me and then I'm going to email them or I'm going to pay attention or have a call or whatever. So you know, if you flip that round, just make sure you aren't just giving the person on the other side a reason to ignore you. Make sure you feel like you're asking them something specific, that you're proposing something that works for them, that you haven't just sent a kind of um, cookie cutter email that you've sent to 55 different people because you're trying to get something similar from all of them. Again, all these things sound obvious, but I'm amazed how often people find me who clearly have just cut and pasted something about their startup. And you think hold on a minute, why am I going to reply to that email? So be graceful, be generous, think carefully about who's on the other side of the table, but do have some tenacity and relentless uh, energy, because I think that is what helps. Um, But you can do it with good grace.
0: And maybe to add to that one, how do you finalize the last um, commercial part, which can sometimes, you said earlier, you don't want to, you want to leave some on the table, but sometimes it's not obvious that you're leaving anything no. on the table sometimes even just saying the price yeah is completely made up especially when you're coming up with a technology solution that um going to change their their cost basis by a multiple of 10. Yeah. you could literally price it at 10. yeah but your cost basis might be one yeah how how did you guys approach this because this is dead inventory they had right this yeah. is stuff they were yeah. not getting rid of yeah how did you guys say you know what like where where is leaving too little or too much on yeah. the table
1: it's a it's a hard thing to get right and it yeah. does depend sector by sector and by whatever business you're in you know i would love to have been part of a business that was going to help somebody times 10 i've never yeah. quite got there but you're right in the way um what last minute.com was doing which is why Brent's idea was super smart was It was saying, look, you have a lot of hotel nights on a Sunday because no one goes to stay in a hotel on a Sunday. But we think we can make people go and stay in a hotel on a Sunday because we're going to come up with some really smart marketing and packaging. You're going to give it to us at such a cheap price that people are going to say, you know what? I'm going to take my new girlfriend on a Sunday night because it's kind of kooky and romantic and all that stuff. So... We didn't have any hidden magic about how to set our commercial no. terms, but we did do a lot of work about what the travel industry's norms were. You know, We knew the, the the world we were playing in even though we weren't insiders and we got a lot of people to talk to, we got some advisors and all of the um, things that you do when you don't know an industry yourself. So we very quickly tried to build an advisory board of people who knew travel very well and got their advice. You know, We often asked people just we go to travel conferences and we test the water. And I think you know, there's no magic for this. You just have to be smart about building up your own knowledge and then making a call about mm-hmm. how you want to play it.
0: Well, if we fast forward to you know how you eventually um, decided to IPO, yeah. and it sounds like from some of the some of the breadcrumbs you've been giving us that it was a very painful time for the company. Maybe you can share why it was a painful time and then eventually why you decided to, to leave.
1: It was a painful time for the company because the expectation and uh, the outside view of lastminute.com shifted so rapidly and yet perversely what was going on inside the company was only getting better. So in 2000 when we IPO'd we were probably the final IPO before the stock market crashed and because we had been people called you know the poster child for that time and all this nonsense monikers but you know there was a huge amount of excitement around our business because we sort of represented this brave new world of entrepreneurialism in the UK two young people we're going to be gazillionaires all this stuff that was completely unreal and when we IPO'd the company was worth you know some insane amount of money like a billion dollars 765 million pounds and that was a share price of 50 £5.35 on whatever day it was in March. I can't remember. I think it was the 19th of March. One week later, the US tech market blew up. The European tech market blew up. All share prices started to collapse. And over the next year, our share price went down to 19p. Now, because we'd had all this attention in the media, and looking back, I was naive about that. You know, go to the opening of an envelope because it would get lastminute.com into the paper, and I thought that was free publicity, and that was good, and all that stuff. So that was all the ride that we were going on that helped the company. But then when that happened, and suddenly we had 135,000 retail investors who'd all bought shares in the company who felt aggrieved that the stock price had gone down. Surprise, surprise, the Daily Mail starts writing headlines that were pretty hideous. You know, Things personally extremely unpleasant about me, lastminute.com, most overhyped company ever, it's going to be a disaster, everyone should get out, really unpleasant things. And that's that was personally difficult to manage. I was only 29. Um, But it was also, much more importantly, tough for all the people that were sweating away in the company to do a good job. And we weren't a company full of, you know, 55-year-old people who all had their lives set up. We were a company full of 25-year-olds who were just working flat out to try and build their careers. And they read things every day that were sometimes borderline abusive, often abusive, and then through to, you know, generally just a bit mean. And it was hard to steer that course of Hold on, everybody. Let's focus on what's actually happening in this business and to disconnect this insane noise about the company from the realities of growing the business, Mm. which, as I say, perversely was growing because we were going from nothing to more and then a bit more than that. So that was it was tough.
0: I mean, I guess now you maybe have more hindsight and would have done things slightly differently from the PR point of view, but from the management point of view. Or would you have done differently was there a rallying cry that you would have done or is it that you were, we were torn were... up too much by the emotions of the, sort of the negativity that you weren't able to, to lead that way no, just... I
1: definitely had one of the darkest weeks of my life and had to just go to bed which is very unlikely I literally hid I got you know a lot of handwritten letters of quite vile abusive stuff to me and I think that was about being a young woman and out there and all of that stuff that now you just get a torrent of stuff online probably um but Brent was brilliant through all of that so apart from that one personal week where I had a us nasty uh time i think um in terms of the company and focusing on them i think we did an okay job i think we realized that it could actually be a galvanizing thing if you played it right and all you can do i believe is just keep communicating with people try and pull people together keep them steady show the vision keep showing the results be open be direct not be opaque not be difficult answer people's questions help people feel like this is a journey they still wanted to go on and you know we didn't lose those of people that we wanted to. We didn't. We 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 managed to get there, so something was going right. I think the the um the thing that I probably would have done differently now, with hindsight, is we just IPO'd too early. It's as simple as that. You know, and that again is a very different thing to now, where people stay private for much longer. The, the dynamics have shifted completely. You know, we, were, we weren't pushed to IPO by our investors. That That's not fair at all. But there was definitely a kind of roller coaster that I felt we were on, Brent felt we were on. And uh, I remember Brent saying to me the night when we were up, sort of three in the morning, setting the price for the IPO the next morning. And you go through this hideous month of roadshow. We'd been all over the planet. We were really exhausted. It felt completely overwhelming. And they set the price. And I remember Brent saying to me, it's going to be hard to live up to this. And we were both nervous it didn't feel like this elated moment where wow we suddenly made gazillions because we weren't going to clearly because i think everything felt a bit precipitous and so that's what i think now i think you know we should have been private for longer we should have grown the business a bit more you know in some ways it was amazing it gave us all the cash gave us that liquidity got us into a robust position but it it was early
0: it was early so in 2003 you you stepped down and You sort of talk about some of the things that you've been doing since, but what was the catalyst for that? And then what was the sort of the the big thing that you worked on that you're most happy about since then?
1: I had always, I think I had a different relationship to lastmonnet.com, to Brent. You know, it was his idea and he was so generous and we had such an adventure. But I was, you know, 31 when I left and I felt quite spent is the wrong word, but I think I'd felt as though I'd given all of the things that I could give to it. You know, I'd done a lot around the kind of brand and the um, culture building and a lot of the um, deals with the suppliers, all the stuff, you know, Fred had done the same things too, but that's where I felt I'd put a lot of my energy and it was the right time to go and think about doing something else. You know, as it turns out, my life took a dramatic twist because I had a really hideous car accident and it wasn't what I was expecting, but um, I... I felt like I wasn't doing as good a job as I could do anymore, so that was why I wanted to leave. And Brendan had known that for a while, and it was it was yeah, he was brilliant about that. So um, the thing that I feel like I'm most proud of since then, and I, I don't know, I don't sit back and think, oh, I'm so clever, I've done all these amazing things. But some of the things I've loved are, you know, I started this business, Lucky Voice, started mm. in the offline world, and we moved online. It's a karaoke business. It's like the Asian style of karaoke and. Uh, my co-founder in that, Nick Thistleton, has been fantastic. And we've now got uh, 10 venues around the UK and we've just opened in Dubai. So that's a completely different kind of business, but it's joyful because people feel exhilarated when they come together and sing. That's been fun. Um, this might sound strange to people, but actually the work that I did in government, I absolutely loved because I'm, I've always been interested in, in politics in that broadest sense, policy, politics, uh, government, actually the process of governing. to me you know one of the most fundamental levers you know scaling a business is nothing compared to the levers that government has reaching 60 million citizens or whatever it might be so uh, i was lucky enough to do two things in government to work for two prime ministers as the um, digital champion looking at how to help more people get internet skills and uh, as part of that to start a government department in the Cabinet Office called the Government Digital Service. We launched Gov.uk, a dramatically different way of doing the internet uh, and government. And I had a role to play in that and I am not proud of myself, I am proud of what the team created. Yeah, Thank you for that, a lot of very useful services <laughs> there. Well, you know, as I say, I was only one bit of the puzzle, but um, I was that That feels like something that is has made a difference.
0: So tell us a little bit more about Dot Everyone.
1: I was asked in 2015 um, to give the Dimbleby lecture which is uh, for anyone that doesn't turn on BBC One at 10.30 at night, for which you are forgiven, Mm. um, a lecture that the BBC did instigated in memory of Richard Dimbleby, a great broadcaster in the UK and it's 45 minutes of television for one person to just talk about what they believe in. So it is an extraordinary opportunity to reach millions of people in a different kind of world to the one that, you know, the tech crazy startup world, I guess. And when I was asked to do it, I thought, everything in my body was going, no, I don't want to, it's really scary. And obviously it's the kind of thing you have to say yes to. So then um, I wrote wrote a speech about, you know, the kind of things I think are important about digital and the internet and the next phase of how we help make it more equitable and fair for people, not just the startup world. And uh, I got a group of people together and I read it to them. And there was kind of silence in the room. And I said, what? And then my brave friend, Russell Davis said, it's boring. So um, he and a couple of others helped me tweak and work on what I was saying. No, tweak's unfair. Rework what I was saying. And we came up with Dot Everyone. And actually, it's a sort of culmination of what I believe about where we're at in the internet. Uh, Genesis in the UK, particularly, you know, I'm a hugely um, excited tech evangelist, but I'm not some crazy tech utopian. I don't believe startups and software is going to save the world. I think it's an indelible part of the world. But I think um, there is a lot that makes it inequitable. And that if you look across many axes, you look across how many people in this country don't use the internet, and it's absolutely directly linked to poverty. If you look at the gender balance, both in the tech sector, but also how who uses products and services, that's a whole other thing. If you look at the grip that a very small number of Silicon Valley companies have on the internet, that's a very unfair thing. So from many angles, it feels as though the internet is different to how I imagined it would be when we started lastminute.com, mm. open, redistributive, democratic, all those things. So without being naive or kind of too... Um, uh, Yeah, sort of Yeah, naive, I guess, about it. Not everyone is very simply just working to make the internet fairer for everyone. We think about stuff, but we also do stuff. And so we build things to show what good might look like in a different kind of way. We're doing a bunch of projects. Um, Some are about helping build deeper digital understanding among our leaders, because I personally believe that if more people who were making big, important decisions understood the power of what technology might look like, not just from the angle of Tech City, but the angle of the poorest communities in this country, then we'd have some better solutions to things. Mm. So we're doing a piece of work around leadership and digital understanding. We're doing some stuff um, about uh, looking specifically at some areas of services and how they could be redesigned to be a bit more fair for everyone. And we're doing some um, work on measuring different attitudes towards the internet in a more robust way, because, again, I think that... Lots of uh, work goes on but from too much of a corporate angle and I want to show what the real view in the UK is of a broader set of ideas about technology, around data, around privacy, around you know mm. um, usage. So it's a broad canvas but we're focusing quite tightly on a few things that we think are going to show a different way of being on the internet.
0: Is Brexit going to be a facilitator for the success of Dot Everyone?
1: Uh, I'm not sure Brexit is going to be the facilitator for success of many things, to be very candid. Um, I think... What do I think? I think that um, everything's now linked to Brexit, isn't it, really? And I definitely believe that if you can come up with a positive vision for what Britain might be post-Brexit, that is valuable and important, and I... Um, slightly frustrated with the tech sector in the UK. It feels as though there's been a lot of shouting about the tech sector post-Brexit. We need these things to be successful and not enough shouting about how the tech sector could reimagine and reinvent more broadly the UK. Now, I know you might argue that lots of startups are doing that by default because they'll scale their businesses and they'll have an impact on people's lives. But I'd like to see more direct action from the tech community to think about some of the things that were laid bare because of the Brexit vote you know the very real lack of connection between people quite literally and the you know very big shifts in the future of work or how communities c- talk to each other and communicate and I think those are the things that I'm interested in and those are the things that everyone I hope will work on uh, is working on and will continue to work on so Brexit just I to my mind speeds up its necessity it's, it's not going to help or hinder
0: hmm. One of the great things about where you are now working in this high level within government and with other companies is that you have access to some of the best uh, talent, but also uh, some of the best leadership around the world. You're in several boards, including Twitter and and others. And if you look at the way that investors supported you during last minute and the kinds of advice you needed at the board level as founders, what, what would you recommend for founders to expect, judging from now what you've seen at the highest quality level boards?
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing about boards. You know, I I enjoy and don't enjoy being on a board because I think if you're an entrepreneur, you kind of want to get stuck into things and you want to be involved. And actually, to my mind, a good director or non-executive director here in the UK, you're not there to run the company to go in and try and sort things out. You're there to be a sounding board, to challenge in a supportive way, to work with the CEO or founder in you know in their in realizing what their ambition is and you know you really have the big lever you have two big levers to my mind in a board one is you do get to make a call about the ceo and that is the fundamental thing and i think boards become toxic if you don't get behind the choice you make you know, you make the decision you support the ceo and if you don't think that's the right ceo you make another decision but where it becomes to my mind kind of fractious and difficult is if that relationship is more complicated so i think one of the things as a founder, which is uh, important to think about is, you know, they are there to challenge you as a board and it, you're not doing your job as a board if you don't put a bit of pushback onto a founder or CEO just to check and, you know, in a supportive way. But it can that can be quite a thing to get your head round. But I also think the other thing is that boards don't do as much as you probably want as a founder. You know, I've, having been a founder and now, you know, being the chairman of the everyone board and the chairman of other boards, you... I often can see the frustration that the company or the organization might want more from its board and the board inherently is never going to be quite giving as much as the founder or the CEO might want. So that, you have to kind of go with a awareness that it's never going to be a completely satisfactory relationship because of the nature of the way boards are set up. But all that having been said, you know, the... Amazing thing about boards is when you bring together networks of people that you wouldn't normally have access to as a founder or you wouldn't be able to tap into for such long periods of time. And if I look at the Twitter board, you know, it's an incredible group of people. We've got Deborah Lee, an amazingly um, impressive woman who runs the uh, Black Entertainment Television Network in the US. She's dynamic and, you know, doesn't she's not a technologist but she brings a completely different level of experience about media businesses you've got Hugh Johnston who's the CFO of PepsiCo you know again a huge global corporate bringing again a t- rigor to the finances in the business and then you've got funny old me coming with my international uh, ethically challenging perspective so it's um it's a it's always a an interesting thing to see these different brains come together to look at us a similar problem and if you're an open-minded CEO or founder that is receptive to that kind of stuff that's what's really valuable
0: mm. one of the things that we always like to wrap things up with is giving you a chance to talk about things you're passionate about now over the course of th- this podcast we've had a chance to talk a little bit about about everyone and, and some of the other areas of interest you've only briefly talked about your interest in women's mm-hmm. rights and and the role of of Tech in, in sort of gender equality. Yeah. Um, maybe walk us through some of the initiatives there, and, and if anybody's listening is interested in, in sort of supporting your efforts around women's rights and social justice and yeah. human rights, what they can do to get involved.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel as though any woman who's lucky enough to have a voice, however big or small, and I'm lucky to have a relatively strong voice um, in a kind of public way needs to use it because right now women's rights are under threat macro level and also then of the micro level if I look at the tech sector you know what is happening around the world is scary right now I certainly feel this is the first time in my lifetime that some of the things that I believe so strongly are being um, undermined you know I'm not saying that Brexit will lead to this but one of the great things to me and one of the reasons I will always be pro-European was because there's a fundamental level of rights that were protected at a European level. And we need to make sure they're protected. I don't think it's a default that they're going to be, and I don't think that's because everyone who wanted to leave wants to abuse human rights, but sometimes these things get lost along the way. Similarly, if you see what's happening in the US right now, you know, it's it's quite unpleasant and scary and I still pinch myself that can be a leader of that country that has openly talked about abusing women. So that's the macro picture, and that's why I feel certainly a member of the House of Lords or someone with a relative profile. If you're out there and you're listening to this, you have to get out there and keep using that voice because it's too important. The micro point, which is not actually that micro because, as we know, the internet is the organising principle of our age, is that the dynamics of the tech sector are quite depressing if you are a woman... Uh, again going back to those early days of the internet it did feel as though that was going to be a different kind of time it was going to be so much more um, democratic than it's ended up being and if you look at the fact that probably only about six percent of the world's software engineers are women six percent you know it's just so weird and odd and it's not okay and it's not okay because of many different reasons but anyone running a startup will know that if you are the software engineer you are the power you're probably paid more than most people in the company you're probably the one that's holding the future of the product in your hands and so to have all that power have gone back to one gender it just feels so wrong and I do think that that culturally presents some challenges and if you look across the sector as a whole as your listeners will know about 23% of the sector is women and only about 14% when you look at leadership positions and that is worse than the house of lords right as a percentage mm-hmm. and the house of lords is a 500 year old institution that sits in a neo-gothic building in the middle of london these things are gobsmacking there are so many initiatives that are going on to help build the profile of women in tech there are loads of great meetups women in tech initiatives here we're in can- google campus and i know sarah drinkwater has done incredible work to build the profile of women-led businesses there's women who code mums who code loads of stuff is happening but to my mind two big things have to shift and the first is we really need to think about how to build the next generation of the engineering level of of women and that starts at schools partly but that's way too long to wait I think we need to be more imaginative at how we bring women back into the technical workspace either maybe when they've gone off to have children or they've taken a career break or even their moving careers be bold about how we can encourage women to think about becoming more deeply technical. That's the first thing, because otherwise we're going to have to wait way too long, and we're relying again on education, and I'm not sure that's going to work. But the second thing is, and this is something that I feel very strongly about, we have to involve men in the conversation. Sometimes feels to me a bit as though it's women having the conversation with women. and We're all believers, right? We, we're, we're living it, we think it's important. You know, I've now begun to refuse to speak on panels if it's all just women not if it's to an audience of mix but it's got to get out there men have got to be part of this journey and you're a brilliant young man you definitely want this to be true for your sector I know I'm sure of it and so it's how do we help you give you the tools to make sure this happens across the things you're involved with that's that's the other part of the challenge to me Mm. Excellent. so we're doing some work sorry I've interrupted you we're doing some work not everyone on it I'm doing it just in a personal capacity on nearly a daily basis yeah. obviously being the um, second woman onto the board of Twitter I'm hoping that is you know the symbolic thing as well as the challenging thing so you know it's just a big responsibility
0: If if right now you needed to start another organisation I know there's the coding side of things which is kind of like if you will the productivity layer mm. then there's the leadership layer do you feel that there's any organizations people can rally around for the leadership layer you know i code anywhere a lot of that sort of is very yeah. functional yeah pragmatic but is there anything at the sort of higher you mean level for the
1: gen- of the gender about yeah. the gender point i think there are you know organizations that are thinking about it you know there's lots of work that had been done by McKinsey looking at you know the macro stats about women in leadership roles um but depressingly I was at an event um organized by founders forum recently where the women global partner at McKinsey showed that the amount of time it will take for men to, sorry for women to be at parity with men in leadership roles not just in tech across the world 224 years so arguably whatever's happening now is not working not even fast enough mm. so I think you just have to engage it wherever but you also have to engage with your own organisation. You know, it's quite easy sometimes to forget the internal thing. You know, if you're building a startup, just have a look around. Are you really being as broad and diverse as you can be? Are you really moving outside your own networks to recruit people from different places? I know I don't do it often enough, and I think it's a hard thing to do, but I would just push back on everybody to think about whatever capacity their organisation is in, sorry, whatever role they're in in their organisation or whatever organisation they're in, it's always a good idea just to have a quick health check in your own role and your own position
0: mm. thanks for joining us Martha it's been a pleasure um, it's, it's great to to have your your thoughts and, and ideas and if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way
1: I am so easy to find I am always on Twitter and I always try to respond I've given up on LinkedIn because I got so overwhelmed by people uh, sending me stuff not because I'm uh, at all remarkable because they were spamming me things so Twitter's the best <laughs> place I'm at Martha Lynn Fox Um, and uh, otherwise you can find me in the House of Lords with my ridiculous title, Fox of Soho. (laughs) Excellent.
0: All right, guys, until next time. Bye.
1: Thank you.